0: Hello and welcome to Think Like an Owner. At the start of episodes, we were having brief two-minute Q&A sessions with our sponsors on all things banking, accounting, insurance, due diligence, and more, all in an effort to share helpful tips and knowledge with listeners. Today, we're starting with a Q&A with August Felker from Oberly Risk Strategies. What are some surprises that are caught during an insurance review?
1: We've been doing insurance reviews. I've been doing them for almost 10 years, and I, I always... Have seen sort of a all, all kinds of things, but the, the the handful that really stick out. One, we were uh, working with a searcher who was looking to buy a business, and when we asked for the insurance, the, the client had had no insurance in place. <laughs> so that was sort of a surprise. That's and that was a surprise to uh, to the searcher too. The second second one which which stands out was there was a very large claim on their auto insurance that had just happened. And the seller had not disclosed that to the searcher, to the acquirer. And we knew that that was really going to impact the insurance premiums going forward. So when we we kind of modeled out what the insurance is going to cost after the first year, we we figured the uh, the premium was going to go up and it probably it actually did about $100,000. So total surprise, very big change in what the uh, insurance costs were going to be in that first year. And uh, we were able to kind of head it off for closing, so everyone knew what was going on. So that was that was really, um, you know, unfortunate. They had to pay more, but but good that we were able to find that. One last surprise that that we see frequently is the sellers oftentimes underrepresent exposures to an insurance company, so they can get a really low premium. So the premiums like artificially low, and insurance policies are audited at the end of the year. So what we do is we look at the exposures and say, hey, you know that uh, the sales are much lower that have been reported to the insurance company than what this business is actually doing. And there are many, many times that we we find that out. And some, in particular, our biggest surprises have been when the client calls and they'll say, hey, the you know I'm buying a business and it's doing five million in revenue, and then we look at the insurance and it's reported as as only a million dollars in revenue. So that can oftentimes be uh, another very large surprise that premium costs are going to go up because it's been unrepresented, uh, misrepresented to the, to the insurance carrier.
0: Wow, these are nuts. Thanks for sharing. To learn more about Oberly Risk Strategies, please reach out to August directly at august.felker at oberly riskcom and visit their website at oberly riskcom I also want to thank our other sponsors, Live Oak Bank and Hood and & Strong for supporting the show. And now to the episode. Hello and welcome everyone. I'm Alex Bridgman and this is Think Like an Owner. This show seeks out conversations with business owners and private investors to learn how to acquire and run small companies with a special focus on search funds, micro private equity and small company operations. You can learn more at alexbridgman.com slash podcast and follow me on Twitter at AE And if you like the show, please leave a review and tell a friend to help more folks find Think Like an Owner. I'm also the founder of The Operator's Handbook a print publication where small company operators share their insights and ideas for building more effective and profitable companies. Articles focus on process improvement, sales, hiring and training, managing culture, and all responsibilities within operating a small company. If you run a small company today and are looking for new ways to grow and improve, subscribe today and join your peers in the endless pursuit of better at theoperatorshandbook.com. My guests on this episode are Michael Curry and Keith Burns, who together have acquired 11 diagnostic, radiation, and other physics services businesses since 2014 through their platform Apex Physics Partners. This episode is loaded with wisdom and insights. I had a number of alternative titles I considered based on quotes for the conversation like the CEO of Delta doesn't know how to fly or putting out fires with your face. Ultimately, earning the right to lead fell right as we talk extensively about their experience being first-time CEOs in an industry they had no background in. But through it all, they've managed to build an impressive track record at Apex with an ever-growing team. Over the course of this episode, we discussed the concept of the messy middle between the start and ultimate success of a business, signal versus noise and learning about the company you've acquired, how to know you're a good leader, letting go of control, and building a culture that grows. Enjoy. Thank you both for coming on the podcast. It's been really fun getting to know you, Michael, and, and chatting with you more and having you both on the podcast this is something I've been excited about for a while. So I'm excited to hear all about APEX and the different topics around leadership and building an organization. I'm excited for all of those. Can we start with intros and backgrounds? And Mike, do you want to start perhaps? Sure.
2: Michael Curry, originally from Atlanta, Georgia, went to undergrad at Emory University which is where I actually met Keith. So we have been friends for, we're entering our third decade. So we're 20 plus years in. Was a finance major, started my career um, as an analyst in investment banking at Morgan Stanley in London. Spent three years doing that. Always knew I had an itch for entrepreneurship. When I graduated from Emory a million years ago, hugged the uh, dean of the undergraduate business program, You know, she told me, good luck with your job at Morgan Stanley, but call me when you're ready to be an entrepreneur. And so that is a thread that I kind of tucked away. Kind of fast forward 2008, 2009, I moved back to the States. I started a men's custom clothing business with another friend, a mutual friend of me and Keith's right around the time of the financial crisis, which was not a great time to be a bootstrapped entrepreneur. But I think the golden nugget Of that experience was meeting a gentleman who introduced me and then i introduced the concept to keith of search funds and entrepreneurship through acquisition one of our clients uh, at the time moved to atlanta to execute a search fund and bought a business in atlanta and that took me down the rabbit hole of exploring the world of search funds and eta keith and i i'll turn it over to keith but Around that time, we started to weave this thread of entrepreneurship through acquisition and it was a function of timing and figuring out how to make it work, but eventually went to get an MBA at U of Chicago, went in pretty convinced that doing the search fund was going to be the path for me. So I had to be the odd person out for two years, not going to all of the banking and consulting and tech recruiting events, but ultimately, you know, Keith and I aligned on our vision for doing search, um, for Seneca Creek, and I'll hand it over to Keith to, to introduce himself and kind of pick up
3: the story there. Yeah. So Keith Burns, also born and raised in Atlanta, Georgia, went to Emory with Michael, was also a graduate of business school. I was a year ahead of him. And then went to Columbia, where I got a law degree and a master's in real estate development. So interesting fact for me, I don't, I don't have an MBA, and went, I was, you know, somewhat of an untraditional search fund CEO candidate. But you know, I think I've been able to leverage, you know, my skill set well. Spent a number of years working at large law firms on the corporate side, supporting M&A transactions, corporate finance transactions for large companies and private equity groups. Uh, Then left that world after about five years and worked for about three and a half years on Wall Street uh, in a compliance and risk management role with Goldman Sachs, supporting some of their investing businesses in the securities division. Was doing well there, gotten promoted, and really, you know, Michael had mentioned in 2008, 2009, you know, he first introduced the idea to us uh, about search funds and I had an email back to him that I actually looked through a couple of couple months ago and it was like, yeah, we should do this. It was like 2008 and, you know, a, we literally just filed it away. And then in 2013, when Michael was looking to come out of business school, you know, I was at an inflection point in my career as well. Things were going well, but that nugget of being an entrepreneur was always there with me as well. And I was getting to a place where, you know, I thought the opportunity to make that exit and not get the golden handcuffs was sort of right in front of me. And so I'll never forget one of the search fund investors that we were talking to at the time, one of the first ones we talked to, you know, asked me, did I tell, you know, anybody at Goldman that I was, you know, sort of pushing this opportunity? And I said, no, you know, I was still evaluating you know, the opportunity and, and and things of that nature. And basically, you know, I think he was interested, but basically said, you know, let me know when you're serious. Like, you know, you kind of have to you know, show that you've kind of burned some of the boats. And I'll never forget the next day I went in and gave notice. And I was just like, we're done. And I didn't have the the fundraised at the time. It might last because it's just something that I would do. Like, I just... Don't call me out because I'll I'll show you I'm not afraid. And so I just did it because and I think that that energy and Michael, you know, he didn't go to any recruiting events because he wasn't afraid. He wasn't deterred. Nowhere in, in his mind or in my mind was there a thought that we couldn't get this done. You know, with that being said, it's it's obviously the hardest thing that either one of us has done from a professional perspective. And I think the growth and the challenge of running an organization now that we have for eight years, you know, is is daunting and it always is challenging and it always, you know, sort of tests who you are as a person. But one of the things about us, you know, both our friendship, our partnership, and just our confidence is that it's unwavering. You know, we, we really always believe that there's an opportunity for us to succeed But we're smart enough and we have enough experience now to recognize that it's not gonna be an easy path. So in the end, we we decided to come together, form Seneca Creek in twenty thirteen, bought a small little business in the medical physics space in April twenty fourteen, and you know, eight years almost later, you know, here we are.
0: Can you walk through what a medical physics business looks like? What types of products, services did they have, types like what was their team made up of? How did that look?
3: So our business, Kruger Gilbert Health Physics, was a business based outside of Baltimore, Maryland, and we provided compliance testing and radiation safety services to hospitals, imaging centers, doctors' offices in the mid-Atlantic region, primarily in Maryland and D.C. at the time that we bought the business. And we ultimately served as an audit function to make sure that radiology equipment that's used to diagnose disease and other issue, medical issues, were working in accordance with various regulations, state, federal, or accrediting bodies. So it's a a compliance-based business in the healthcare space that we thought, you know, had a lot of the great characteristics that you look for, you know, in a search fund business to have recurring revenues, high margins, it was a low capex business. There were some industry tailwinds as it relates to regulation. You know, what subject matter, what the physicists do is actually complicated. There's a lot of science involved, but the service delivery model of a field service business is pretty easy to understand uh, conceptually for us. And so, you know, we had 16 people, including us when we bought the business in April, 2014. You know, now we're you know, about 170. So, you know, we've had a nice, nice run up, very different business that we look at and run and manage today than those days in Jarrett'sville between the the subway and the liquor store. Yeah. So I was going to say corporate headquarters
2: was very humble when we began and it was a very tight knit team. And I think one of the reasons that the sellers were comfortable with us was partially the fact that we didn't know what we were doing. So sometimes being the outsider and not wanting to tinker to a point of destruction can be an advantage. They wanted to make sure that they transitioned the business to a safe pair of hands, uh, people who they felt they could look in the eye and trust, but also people who cared about people in general and culture. And I think one of the things um, that we've learned on this journey is what you believe may be important at the onset changes. So a lot of folks who are looking to buy businesses, it it is largely an academic exercise driven by a spreadsheet. And somewhere along the way, you actually meet and build relationships and get to know people and get to know customers and start to become invested in other humans and their livelihoods and their success. And so, you know, again, you know, all of those, I think, were kind of key ingredients for us having the opportunity to run the business. And one of the things that we tell people all the time is, if you're going down this path of of entrepreneurship, um, particularly entrepreneurship through acquisition, it cannot be purely financial. From a financial, you know, motive, there are plenty of ways to to make a very good living. This one is probably on the medium to hard. Degree of difficulty, uh, particularly because you don't necessarily get to build a culture that you want and you don't necessarily get to draft the team that you want from the beginning. And so there's a lot of time spent getting to know people and building relationships and you being a bit of a chameleon and assimilating and adapting to what exists. And then coming out of that inflection point, really starting to put your fingertips on the business and starting to drive that culture and lead that business in the way that you believe is going to you know, set it up for long-term success.
0: Yeah, one concept we talked about a lot was how long it would take to figure out what you bought versus what you think you bought. How long did it feel to, to find that out for your own business for that first company?
2: I'll turn it over to Keith, but I think one very strong piece of advice that we got from an investor and board member early on is you know don't let perfect be the enemy of good. And so his heuristic was first, if you can navigate the business and you got seventy five percent of what you thought you bought, you got a fighting chance. And so a lot of people are looking for this perfect small business where you know all of the stars align and it has no problems and every employee is an A plus player. And that's just not the reality. So I'll let Keith kind of talk about how we or when we felt like we knew what we got, but we were shooting for making sure that uh, we weren't we weren't landing somewhere below that seventy-five percent of what we thought it was, so that we had a fighting chance.
3: Well, I mean, we learned pretty quickly because we had a lot of issues in the beginning. The biz, you know, fundamentally, the business was what we thought it was. It was a re- highly recurring revenue business with high margins, low capex, you know, steady client relationships. What we didn't take into account and what was hard for us, because we have very little interaction with the employees, was the state of the relationships between the owners and the humans and the people who actually worked there that did the work every day. And I think we completely underestimated how much work needed to be done to repair those relationships. And I don't even think it was all the seller's faults, right? I mean, I think it was the accumulation of them wanting to transition out of the business the business was run you know very informally and to suit their lifestyle and then you have two people who worked on wall street with advanced degrees come into this business with investors who have put you know millions of dollars to work and what we're talking about is night and day from how they've experienced life and you know, I think there was some thought that the, the sellers had some level of lack of empathy for their situation. I don't actually know if that's true or not, but the bottom line is the people that worked for us when we started were super skeptical of two people that had never been in the medical physics industry and in the healthcare industry coming in to run a business that they depended on for their livelihoods. And then there was a bunch of basically tolerated issues that people had in the business. But when they assumed that these were the owners and these were just going to be the issues, it's fine. But now we have these new people. So welcome to the job. Now all the issues are yours. And so, <laughs> so it was the 401k, we think it sucks. The The travel policy is bad. Our computers and our IT provider is horrible. I don't like my salary. You're not paying me enough. I should get paid as much as the other person. So, yeah, I mean, we bought what we thought we bought, but we completely underestimated the human capital issues that we faced. And we had consultants that came in and did work ahead of time and sort of prepared us in some ways. And I still think we undershot that by a mile. And so we spent the better part of, I'd say, four of the first five years just ticking down every issue that was raised in that first six months. The 401k, the IT provider, the salary adjustments, the, the appropriate hiring, buying enough equipment so people didn't have to share, moving from the office that was in horse country to a much more sort of normal place to have an office. All, you know not doing our books on green ledger paper and actually putting them in a system. You're laughing, but this is a true statement. I used to write checks on green ledger paper because, you know, we couldn't, we couldn't sort of put it in the system. So all of those things took a long time. And so the biggest, you know, the biggest thing that I continue to appreciate and learn is for me particularly in a human capital business like this, but I would say it probably matters in any business. You know, you have to figure out how to get the people right. And it's one thing that Michael and I have a natural affinity and gravity towards. But if you don't, you have to figure out how to get there. Because I think it's critical.
2: I think the other thing to note is, particularly in a business that you didn't start, we had to earn the right to lead. And I think that a lot of people believe that because you have letters behind your name and your email signature, that people will follow you or people will be on board with the vision or people will um, step out on a limb and be open to, to change. And it's just not the case. And so I think, you know, you know, lots of folks have had different experiences, you know, buying and operating businesses. Some of them came out of the gate on fire. Uh, We like to tell our story because it's more of a tortoise and the hare story of really compounding learnings and compounding relationships and really learning and getting to a place where we earned the right to lead and we rolled up our sleeves and it got punched in the mouth enough to become seasoned operators of a business so that when we took this group of 16 people, including us, and said, hey, the next step of this process is We're going to take what we've built, share it with other people across the nation and build, you know, a multi-regional heading towards a national uh, franchise that everybody can be proud of. You know, many of the people at the beginning of the journey who frankly thought we would fail in the first six months were some of the first people, you know, when we decided to form Apex were some of the first people to grab oars and say, hey, we believe in you guys. You got us, you know, from where we were. We, we essentially, you know, doubled headcount from a technical perspective in about four years, expanded more deeply into Virginia and Delaware and Pennsylvania. And no one, if you'd asked them to be honest in those first six to 12 months, if you asked them if they thought that they would be a a part of that business and now a part of this business and being successful and having, you know, opportunities for career advancement, you know, they would have told you they were crazy and the two crazy black guys from Atlanta are out of their mind to step into medical physics. But we're, here, but we're still here.
0: Absolutely. How did you start to, I mean, there's a lot within the idea of earning the right to lead, but it sounds like within a lot of those issues, there was a lot of prioritization that you had to make where certain issues are like much more immediate or much larger than some of these. There's a little bit of signal to noise as well. Like some of these might be issues, but some might be much more minor issues than they sound like they are. How did you start figuring out what issues to focus on and where to invest your effort and time into repairing that relationship with with a team?
3: So we had a, a group, an HR group, it was called Right Management, and they came in and did a roundtable discussion with all of our employees. And they literally just went through different areas of the business why people like the business, why people didn't like the business, what they thought should change. And ultimately, we got a a really nice 20-page report of all of these things that we needed to do. So how do we prioritize the 20 pages? I always believe, you know, I kind of believe in the snowball effect, which is quick wins to sort of build credibility. So we started at the bottom. You know, we hired a new IT service provider. We said people were meeting in the parking lot of the local supermarket to exchange equipment. And we just said, we're going to buy the people that do certain types of work enough equipment so that everybody can have their own equipment and, and easily sort of do this work. And we improve quality of life that way. We got a new 401k provider that didn't charge, you know, exorbitant fees and have more investment options. We, you know, hired some new physicists that we needed to divide some of the work. And we started to build a system that actually managed the capacity of the team so that we can actually have visibility in how much work people were doing so that we can distribute work more fairly and equitably. We made some pay adjustments. We had to adjust people's salaries to the market. But, you know, what we also did is we also had to tell people no. I think, we got to a point where here are the things that we're willing to fix, but we're not running a charity. We're running a business, right? We bought a business with a certain revenue level, a certain earnings level, and we need to grow that over time. And so we did tell people, no, we told people, you know, we're going to take on new business. And they said, no, we can't take on new business. You know, we have so much to do. And we're like, look, we're it's a grow or die mentality. We have to grow. Now we can grow smartly and we can be thoughtful about staffing and looking at all these things. But we had to tell people, no, there were certain people that didn't align with our core values and our mission and our vision, and they left the organization. And so that we had to sort of draw a line there and say, here's what we're doing. We understand if that doesn't work for you and we wish you well, but but we have to have people that are willing to sort of follow us and follow our direction. And so, you know, those are some of the, that's the, some, some of the way we approached it. We, we More often than not, we had to make the place a better place to work. Yeah.
2: The one thing I will say about prioritization, because one of the things that me and Keith pride ourselves on is, is not giving this overly dramatized version of the story where everything goes up and to the right. We've gotten much better at it over time. And so when things are going wrong and you're new in the seat and you've taken people's money and you're trying to make good, and this is, you know, a big opportunity cost for people, you know, there is a lot of pressure and a lot of stress. And so I do recall we worked with a woman in the early days who sometimes just dis- described our management style as putting out fires with our face. And so Again, very young operators with lots of new stakeholders, it does take time to to sort of, you know, sift out signal versus noise. And I think over time, I think we started to to really internalize kind of what Ray Dalio says as another one of those. So I can recall specific situations about pay, about capacity, about growth about culture and people living, values. In the first instance, all of those situations seemed dire life or death and like no one else who had ever operated a business had dealt with those situations before. And now each of those examples, Keith and I have at least a handful of another one of those. That's another one of those. And so I don't think at the onset, anybody's gonna get the prioritization right. But I do think You know, recognizing that it's a process um, is important. I think the second thing that did help us, though, Keith, was when we started to think about how we ran the business with EOS, because I think that that gave us a frame and a framework with which to bucket problems, to look at them, and then to decide how to solve them, but also how to organize the business so that the right person is solving those problems. And that Keith and Mike are not responsible for solving the problems, uh, all the problems in the business.
0: One concept I know we talked a lot about was the messy middle, where there's this this time you get in the business, it's you know, kind of exciting, you've closed, and then at the very end, there's the sell or exit, or you know things have stabilized and are good, but there's this middle part that's kind of fuzzy and messy. How does that concept, how do you interpret that concept within your own business and where do you, where have you experienced that concept the most?
2: Mike, I think that's, I'll let you start that one. So, there's actually been multiple messy metals. So, kind of think about it, you know, we, we kind of always talk to our team about kind of three phases for the business. You know, phase one was, The two guys that you're talking to running a business in the middle of horse country in Maryland that have no business running the business, um, getting it to a place where uh, it could be a model for other businesses. And I think the messy middle in that business was figuring out growth, figuring out how to manage capacity, starting to build a culture and to build a team to manage. And so that's why I hearken to the fact that, you know, we don't kind of overdramatize that everything was great and then one day we decided to form Apex. I can recall coming home from work one day after not getting a sale that we really needed to make our budget, that our board told us that we needed, and kind of parking in the Safeway parking lot and calling my mom, because that's the only person that I could think to call. And just crying and just asking myself, "What the hell am I doing?" right I just finished U of Chicago. Keith just left Goldman. We're, we're We're literally rowing this business by ourselves because at that point we hadn't gotten the buy-in, We hadn't started to appoint people as leaders in the business, And there wasn't this it's a slam dunk that we are going to make this work. We're going to turn a corner. We're gonna grow and expand into Virginia and start to you know, build the business and create a structure with teams. You know, another messy middle story I can share is Keith and I talked to a good buddy and a fellow Emory alum who was also a search fund operator, hat tip to Andrew Saltoon. And I remember coming home from work and I took the call from my car and he introduced us to a book called The Hard Thing About Hard Things, written by Ben Horowitz. And after we kind of explained what was going on with the employees, what was going on with our board, you know, customers who didn't get what we were trying to sell and that we needed to grow, that was just a very sobering conversation that it's all your fault. And what he what he meant by that statement was, you guys run the business. And even though you may not have caused all the issues, you know, you may not be responsible for all of the things that are going on until you flip the switch and kind of take 100% accountability for what's going on internally and externally with all the stakeholders. You're not going to ever put your arms around the business and start telling people internally or externally, here's what we're doing and here's what we should do. So that's also kind of a messy middle memory. And then now, Keith mentioned, you know, we formed Apex. With Kruger Gilbert being the first practice in 2019, and now there are seven Kruger Gilberts and all of the work that it took to build relationships and trust and to build a system that works, having to do that in multiple places at the same time with new people, many of whom were not there to see 16 people in between the subway and a liquor store and how we were able to grow and transform that business. And still have a healthy degree of skepticism that all of this that we're all working together to pull off with Apex is going to work out. And, you know, Keith and I talk all the time, you know, in addition to our day jobs of of growing and managing the business, we have to be the metronome because we've seen a previous version of this messy metal. And now we do have allies and leadership that that as a part of KGHP that's seen it as well. But we have to be that steady metronome to let people know, uh, we hear you, we feel you. Growth is messy, ugly, it's painful. But we've gotten to the other side of the chasm before and we'll get to the other side of the chasm again. But you have to trust us and you also have to be honest enough to tell us when we're, we're falling short of the mark as well.
0: Are there any key memories or moments where it felt like you were about to cross that chasm where things were starting to kind of turn a little bit in your favor?
3: The first inflection point for us was literally the the president of Kruger Gilbert now, who's kind of been our 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 longest tenured leader except for my client I so we put made our leader the first after the first year we owned the business so she's been a leader of the business you know in some respects since twenty fifteen she came to us. Two months into our ownership period, because we had a twelve-month period where the former owners were still supposed to be consultants, and she came to us and she said, "Look, I'm from the military. We believe in chain of command. And you guys are, you know, you bought the business, right? So you're the leaders. You're the chain of command. And having this concept of the former owner still being as involved as they are, particularly given the issues and you guys, is going to lose you the team. So I don't really know you from a can of paint, but I'm telling you." you might want to make a decision because you're probably going to lose a lot of the team. If you don't make a decision. I don't know why we believed her other than she had no interest in telling us that other than I think she wanted the business to survive for other people and maybe for herself. So we basically had to fire the former owners two months into running the business. And the whole plan was to learn from them for the full 12 months. So, we basically, they had taken a long, extensive trip in Europe after selling the business. They came back, and we said, hey, we really appreciate you know everything you did selling us the business, but it's going to cause issues with the team if you guys are still around. So we'll still pay you, but you got to go home. We'll take it from here. And I still think about it. What stupidity or courage, I don't know which one to call it, but it was a little like, – it was such a, a critical moment that it could that things could have just gone in a number of different directions. But it's the moment I always think back to because I said we were never we've never been in as worse position to make a decision as we were then. Given the, and given the magnitude of the decision. And I think we made the right one and it made all the difference. And it's the thing I go back to when I face decisions now about people on the team that we may lose decisions about clients, decisions about which which business to buy. Michael and I have always you know been willing and courageous enough to make a tough decision and they don't all go right, but I do think that one actually was a big turning of the corner for us because it identified her as a leader for us. It also showed people that we were willing to make a tough call and at that point, we weren't sure what this thing was going to do. So we kind of it kind of was a resetting of expectations for us because we were like, oh, wow, we're really out here. There's no one. You know, we can kind of call them, but they're mad because we just had to let them go. So we really just had to, to figure it out. I think other points were when we first bought a business so in 2018 was the first time that we actually bought another practice and our philosophy was so simple we just went and met the guy like three or four times michael had been talking to him for almost a year and he finally just felt comfortable enough for us to to buy the business and we were able to buy the business and it's one of the best acquisitions that we've ever done i mean we more than doubled the the amount of revenue we got from his client base. We were able to fold it seamlessly into our business. And it was the time that Mike and I said, oh, wow, I think we might've stumbled onto something. And we bought two more businesses in the next three months. And Then we actually had to stop because we were like, well, wow, we didn't recognize that this thing was gonna actually work the way we thought it was gonna work. We slowed down and we tried to you know, integrate the businesses in the right way. But that was the first time that we really figured out that this idea of acquiring other similarly suited businesses and operating them with EOS and some of the things that we had learned from Kruger Gilbert would work. And then I think the last and most recent was COVID was really a challenge for us. You know, I think it impacted numbers of businesses. Our business wasn't as directly impacted in terms of our volume because we had a required you know business. But it really did hamper our ability to get out and meet other practice groups and draw them into our partnership to meet the people that we were bringing on into Apex. But despite all that, we still grew. We still added partnerships in the last two years. We still expanded client relationships. We were able to hire really good team members. And so it's funny, basically every other week, I have a message in our our level 10 meeting that we do with our senior leadership team. And I just leave a headline and I say, 2022 is going to be a great year. And it's because I know I have type A people who all want the gold star and they're just looking at their list and saying, this isn't working right. And they're going to ask me about this and I don't know what's going on. And this client needs so much from us. But I know that this is the point where you can get pretty low on yourself because it just seems like there's so many things to do. But in the end, we know that we're, we're doing exactly what we need to do and that, you know, the result on the back end is going gonna, gonna to be what it's going to be, but it's going to come from the work that we're doing now. So, you know, it's our job to keep people's you know, morale and head up because we, you know, we can see things and we know where this thing is going to end up and other people may not see it. So as we go, so goes others. So that's, that's the thing that we like to sort of remind each other. And that's why it's great to have a partner. Because between the two of us, it's very rare that we're both having a bad day on the same day,
0: which is pretty nice for everybody. Yeah, certainly. And Michael, in the background, you have easy choices, hard life, hard choices, easy life. Has that been a a bit of a motto for you in a lot of these decisions too? Yes.
2: So the one thing that has been imprinted in our brains is making decisions theoretically versus making them in real life are two completely different enterprises. So you read all of these books on when you think a person is not a good fit that you should find a way to re- you know transition them out of the business as, as quickly as you can it's better for the organization it's better for that person but actually having to do it is hard. And so what we have found is The realities of hard decisions don't change by ignoring them and kicking them down, you know, kicking the can down the road. And so what we find often is the easy choice is to ignore that you have problems or try to paper over them or try to use euphemisms and not call a thing a thing. But typically the hard choice is to make the tough call, to have the difficult conversation. Uh, to pull the trigger, you know, even if you don't have full facts and information. But in the end, it it actually makes things easier and it creates, we think, an environment of transparency and accountability and trust. And, you know, what I will say, you know, particularly on the human capital side is you know, not making decisions and to use kind of EOS parlance, GWC, which is get it, want it, and has the capacity. When you have members on the team who don't GWC or don't meet kind of your core value threshold, but you allow those people to remain in the organization, it really has you know, a negative compounding effect on the morale of people who do GWC and our core value fits. Because they're looking around to say, I'm doing the right things, but we're allowing people who may not be the right fit for this team to remain on the team. So how serious are we about these values that we espouse and who we say we are? And sometimes I would say in the early days, those were the easy choices. And we never regret, I think now, making the harder choice faster because you're going to have to make the decision either way. And so it's kind of like you'd rather go to the doctor where you can work out and and do a little exercise and, and change your diet. Right, because you're, you know, pre-hypertension versus showing up in the ER under cardiac arrest. And now you still have to make a hard choice, but it's a much harder choice because you did make the hard choice when you needed to.
0: Yeah, and especially in a company when you when you start out with only thirteen employees, that's a pretty tight knit group. How do you let go of folks who are up who are not a fit but are within this you know, pretty small company where everyone's, you know, fairly familiar with each other and might even be friends. How do, how do you let go of someone from that kind of business?
2: I think, and Keith, feel free to jump in. I think it has to do with trust. And I think it has to do with clarity of expectations. And what I mean by trust is we, we didn't go in saying it was Mike and Keith's way or the highway, or just start making... You know, just very short-sighted, very flip decisions. And so, again, that earning the right to lead. When something has gotten to a place where we've had to make that decision, we actually have built up enough trust in the you know kind of the trust deposit bank, so that people actually know that if this is a decision that we've reached, that it's not something that hasn't been thought out, it hasn't been examined, and it's not what we truly feel is in the best interest of the business. Um, but I think going to expectations, uh, a lot of times, you know, we have we have had to transi- transition people out of the business. But in many cases, people have opted to leave because the expectations and the culture that we were building weren't a fit. And so they opted out. And so I think when we made it very clear that the expectations and the culture weren't changing and that we felt very strongly that the decisions that we were making were going to put the business in the best possible place for success. And if people disagreed, they at least knew where we stood and then they had a decision to make as well.
3: Yeah. And it's just never, it's never easy to, to let people go. I think, you know, you want to be able to allow them some level of dignity in doing that. We tend to be really generous in terms of support, you know, supporting them for the most part. Because in, in most cases, it isn't a core value issue. It's, hey, they don't, they don't get the role. They don't want the role. Or, you know, the role has changed. The business has morphed. And now we need them to do something different. Or they were never a good fit in the first place. And somewhere, you know, in our recruiting process, we sort of missed the mark. So in most cases, you know, we just say, hey, there may be another place where you get to sort of work in the role and do the things that you want to do. You know, in a couple of cases where it's more of a core value thing, even in, you know, we do look at it and say, do we not set them up with the right training? Do we not set the right expectations? So I do think there's some self-reflection there. But at the end of the day, I think you do harm your business more. when You keep people that aren't good fits, both that person the business and then the other people that sort of see that as well. And, you know, it's just something that it's, it's what's required of a leader. I think that's the real hard part. It's people love, I get to make all the decisions and I get to tell people what to do. And, you know, I get to have the biggest salary or the biggest, you know, biggest piece of pie at the, at the company picnic. But the, the reality of, of being a leader in a company is sometimes you have to make financial decisions or you have to make personnel decisions that impact people's lives, and you have to do it for the betterment of everybody. and And it's it's really challenging. And you know, we've had people question, you know, why you, we can't lose this person because if the, we lose this person, everything is gonna go to hell in a handbasket. And eight years later, here we are, right? We're you know, eight times the size that we were when we first started, we have 10 times the amount of employees. And so it's through our experience that we know that there are graveyards full of irreplaceable people. And it's not a callous thing because that that actually points to us as well. It is the collection of people and processes and clients that we've amassed that should outlive any one individual person. And as long as we treat people with respect, you know, on the way out and we were really clear about where they were meeting or not meeting the mark, I think we can let people go with a relatively good conscience. But anybody that tells you that's not that it's easy or this is the five step process, like I, I don't know. I mean, it may work for them, but like it's 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 heart wrenching to fire somebody. It just never, it never gets easier to me and I've done it a fair amount, you know, not a crazy amount, of, you know, but I've done it enough, a couple of hands that it, it never gets easier. And that's why, you know, your recruiting processes and making sure you're hiring the right people that are good fit is really important. Managing the finances of your business so that you're not hiring people faster than your business is growing you know, are key things. And it's something that when I'm, you know, I'm on a board of a couple of companies as well, it's the number one thing that I, I let talk about is, hey, look, costs are growing. SG&A is growing faster than revenue at a certain point in time. That's not a good sign. You know, I know we think we need all these people and we need to build this big organization, but you have to, you know, the business has to support it. So it, it's something that I think, if you're being honest, never gets easier. But you just recognize the responsibility. And as Michael said, it's all our fault. It's the number one thing that you have to do that you may not like to do in the seat.
0: Yeah, and you mentioned as a leader that some folks enjoy being able to make all the decisions and have complete control and all that. But obviously you have to outgrow that eventually. How did you approach hiring folks who would take on specific roles in the company that were hopefully and likely very much smarter than you at doing that role and having to let go of control to folks like that who are talented, but maybe it's kind of scary letting go of something that you did for a long time. What did that feel like? How did you approach that?
3: It was hard. I mean, I, I had to probably do a little bit more of it than Michael just because he has such a unique skill set and always sort of had a different focus. But for me, operationally, you know, I'm not a CPA, so I had to ultimately hire someone to do finance you know operations I'm not a physicist so I had to hire someone to sort of manage the the physics team you know for me the one good thing and it's probably more than one good thing but the one good thing about me being an attorney is like my whole world was about learning new subject matter and asking a lot of questions and so I was really able to ask a lot of questions and glean enough to be able to manage them and manage the business because again I don't need to be you know a subject matter expert you know i had someone say to me i can't remember where i heard it or where they said it but they said the guy who runs you know delta airlines doesn't know how to fly a plane right but it doesn't mean he doesn't know that the airplane has to show up on time and people have to fly it and people have to get on it and pay for it and so i've always you know let myself off the hook in that way and that i don't need to know the absolute nuances of finance and accounting but i need to be able to understand the numbers and the trends and the business model, but it's very tough for me. It was very tough because, you know, I, I grew up getting the gold stars, right? Like, you know, my, we have this, we have this business coach and he calls our management team, the AP kids, right? I have two master's levels physicists who are off the chart smart. Then I got a couple of other really smart folks. And then you got Michael and I who, you know, we're pretty humble, but look, this is a smart group of people. So he calls us the AP kids, right? Because we're always trying to get the A on the test and get the gold star. So like for the AP kid, I'm like, I can do that pretty well. Should I give that up? I don't think I should give it up. They're going to screw it up. I don't think they're going to do it right. Uh, And so most of it was having them do it right. And then some of them even saying, look, I just did it right. So like, why are you looking over it again? I'm like, okay. Fair enough. Now it's funny because I am comfortable with doing it, and then they're like, "But you're not looking at it anymore." So you have to balance that, right? Like they're like, "You don't pay," it, you know, "You're not even looking at." The, I'm like, "I'm looking, but I'm I'm measuring it." Um, but it was really hard for me, and I think you have to hire people that are willing to speak truth to power and say, "I got it. This is." This is a director-level issue. This isn't a presidential issue. This isn't a CEO-level issue. We got it at our level, and we're going to run with it. And then I also think it made me much better at setting scorecards and deliverables and timeframes, and then also giving people a decision format. So Michael and I, you know, one of our uh, board members and, and mentors set up this framework of inform, recommend, and workshop. So all of our leaders know they have to do one of those three things when they bring it to Michael and I they have to inform us of a decision that they've already made because it's clearly in their purview if it's not completely in their purview then they need to recommend a decision but just saying here's a bunch of facts question mark is not an appropriate response for a leader like you need to recommend you need to take some ownership not put the mon- the proverbial monkey on our backs and then the last one is is workshop when you legitimately don't know what to do or where to go and you want to brainstorm and be open about what the option can be that's a third option but it should be an intentional one not one where you you're just not making a recommendation and so that was also a really important framework for us to teach to our leaders so that they build that confidence themselves of making the decisions and we have you know we have a failure budget they don't always make the right decisions or they don't always do the right thing. But I can think of a number of scenarios where people made decisions, they hired the wrong person, or we forgot this entry in our accounting, or we didn't do this at a client and we almost risked loss. And I can't remember a single one of those where anybody got let go, got fired. Because again, we're not, we're not robots, we're people. And frankly, I think a lot of people overreact to sort of failures and they actually they basically pay for the failure and never get the benefit of it. If you fire somebody after they made a mistake, in a lot of cases, you're still going to pay for the failure. But now you get no benefit from the lesson. And our view is we're going to get benefits from the lesson. Now, we don't appreciate the same mistake being made by the same person. But having that failure budget and actually capitalizing on people's mistakes and actually getting the benefit of the learning has been pretty critical for us. I also think that a lot of people have to
2: to question or assess how they frame being a leader. So again, I would argue that if you are making all the decisions in the business, that is a poorly run business and has a huge bottleneck in you. Right. And so I think being in a situation where you want complete control and make all the decisions, you're probably better off being an individual cont- contributor or doing something kind of freelance where it literally is you're a one man show. But I think you know, leading a business is really about you being kind of the GM and the owner, as well as a coach in many cases, but you have a philosophy on how the team is going to play, what's the strategy, and then you find the people to put on the field or on the pitch. And really the team, you know, your expression of the strategy and your thoughts should be manifested through the team and not 100% through you. So, you know, we would argue over time we would hope that fewer decisions actually make it to us and those be the truly important decisions in the business because that means that we have the right people in the right seats and we've given people the right confidence, support and decision rights to really own um, their domain. So ownership is one of our core values. And so, you know, being in a position where you are making all the decisions in the business, you know, we don't see that as being a net positive and frankly, not sustainable. I mean, I, I think even the the brightest of person will can say that not all of the best ideas are going to come from their two ears, and if so, I mean you you probably are kind of building a team of B minus C players to stroke your ego versus building the A team to go out and execute and, and build something of value. is is my two cents.
0: Yeah, I love that. I'd love to ask you an hour, another hour's worth of questions, but we we can't unfortunately. I'd like to do some closing questions. First one being: What college class would you teach if it could be about any subject you wanted?
3: I, I always say that I should have majored in organizational behavior or psychology because I feel like a lot of what I do is sort of behave like behavior. So I would probably teach some type of organizational behavior managing people, psychology type class, because again, that to me, being able to get to the root cause of people's psyche and what causes them to make this certain decisions to me is a a very large part of what I do. Understanding numbers and business strategy is great, but what has really set us apart is being able to understand people. So that's what I would teach. I would
2: teach a class on
3: sales. I think
2: not enough students in the United States are actually taught the fundamentals of sales, but effectively you are influencing and selling all of the time. So from raising capital from investors to prospecting for a business to purchase, to getting those first 16 employees to actually give us a shot to going out and landing business, I mean, all of that has an element of sales. And I think sales gets a bad rap but really what it is, is being curious, asking thoughtful questions, empathizing with people and trying to help them solve their problem. But I think more people could benefit from improving their sales skills and ability.
0: Would it be a class where you walk in and every desk has a phone in it and just a list of phone numbers and that's the whole hour you spend there?
2: <laughs> or, or, you know, sell me this pen. <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah, well, you got to pick up the phone for
0: sure. Yeah,
2: there's there's no there's no substitute for picking up the phone or engaging somebody you don't know in a conversation, and really being interested in understanding who they are, and what their problems are. I think it's just a very helpful skill.
0: Yeah, one of my favorite scenes of all time in any finance movie is the DiCaprio speech in Wolf of Wall Street, where he's talking about, you know, if you're girlfriend thinks you're a loser good pick up the phone and start dialing it is it was one of the most epic speeches i've ever seen but that's that's a favorite of mine that'd be a great one what's a what's strongly held belief have you changed your mind on i'm the best person for
3: the job all the time that's a good question
2: i have changed my mind that i have to care about everything What I find is that there's a finite amount of time and bandwidth that we all have. And so, even people who are promoting very positive causes, again, going back to sales, are trying to sell you that this particular world issue, or local issue, or national issue is the most important thing in the world. And our brains are just not wired to care about all 7 billion of the world's ills. And so, I guess choosing to focus on what I can control, and and having the right to not have an opinion about everything.
0: I like that one. That's a good one. What's the best business you've ever seen?
3: I mean, as I sit here talking to you on my Apple computer, I think those guys have definitely uh, figured something out. I think the 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 building, the brand, and the ecosystem that you know you you the customer anticipates and wants whatever you produce because you have that level of trust with them is pretty remarkable so I think that that's they have a pretty great pretty great thing
2: going on there it's a hard question because my my head says Amazon for a lot of the obvious reasons of turning cost centers into profit centers and kind of really being customer obsessed but I can't think of a particular brand per se, but I would say a brand that is small on purpose and that focuses on quality and does not have aspirations of global domination, but truly sees that its reason to exist is to provide some product or service in an excellent way and is not kind of been bitten by the bug of growth for the sake of growth. You know, I think somebody said, you know, the two things that want to grow to no end are kind of publicly traded businesses and cancer sales. And so, you know, I think a nice small business that knows its customer, that knows its product or service, that is perfectly content building a beautiful experience for that customer and being able to go home and say that that's enough is probably, I think, a great business.
0: Do you have any notable examples that come to mind when you think of businesses that have turned away big growth opportunities in order to stay small? And
2: I think of some of the specialty car companies. I also think of stereo and headset companies that intentionally don't mass produce their cans. So I'm a big audiophile. And so some of the, the best of the best headsets, they don't have 17 different types of headsets. They don't release them every 30 minutes, but you know, if you spend the extra money to buy that set of cans, that, that process and the care that went into making them and the company standing behind them, you know, you're going to get the quality of the sound that you're paying for.
0: Yeah. Isn't there, there's some headphone company in, I want to say New York that makes them Homemade and it's some family business that's been passed down. And they they there's a cool video of them hand making all of them. They're really expensive, but they're really high quality. I can't remember the name of that. Do you do you know which business I'm referring to?
2: I I know I can't afford those those cans just yet, but I know who you're talking about. And those are the types of businesses you know that I really admire because they really stand for something. Not that larger businesses don't, but I think that the different pressures and different incentives that often go into Um, bigger businesses or people buying businesses believing that unless they achieve you know some apple status in terms of size or you know some amazon level of success that it's not successful
0: yeah certainly well thank you both so much for coming on the podcast this has been a really really fun episode that i think could have been several hours so thank you for helping me try to condense it into into one hour but thank you both for sharing a little bit this has been really fun Thank you, for having us. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you enjoyed the show, please consider leaving us a review and telling a friend to help more folks find Think Like an Owner. I also want to thank our show's sponsors, Live Oak Bank, Hood Strong, and Oberly for their support. For full episode transcripts and more information, please visit our website at alexbridgman.com slash podcast. And if you want to learn more about The Arbiter's Handbook, please visit us at theoperatorshandbook.com and join your peers in the endless pursuit of better.